0: And we're back oh mercy mercy me profane faith y'all season five is in full effect what is happening now we have a new president oh dear goodness i don't know y'all <laughs> come on now season five hit it Give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God, Jesus Christ. Let's turn the tables on you. Amen.
1: Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done.
0: I bet he can't wait to go home and be become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and/or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane, defying God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions; rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host. Daniel White Hodge All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, welcome back y'all. Um first and foremost, um we made it through. Yeah, we, uh, we didn't have a a full-out civil war, so that was that was good. Um <laughs> a lot of stuff going on since I ended season 4 and here we are season 5. Um Well, first, first and foremost, if you're listening, thank you so much. Um, I didn't do any real advertising this year. I've been—I want to explain that a little bit, just because I feel like I have been really on a love-hate relationship, more hate, uh, with social media. Um, I'm still banned from uh, uh, Twitter, my Twitter account. So, if you've been trying to tag me and stuff. Nothing has been getting through, so uh, I'm on like my fifth appeal at this point. I've just been emailing just the Twitter about helpline and still getting no responses. I've filed a whole bunch of different, you know, appeals, but I have gotten no response. The one response I did get, and for those of you who don't know, um, so back in June, uh, it was on June 17th, uh, there, well, there was this, this goes all the way back to when Lecrae. Was on the show with like this white racist pastor who talked about let's not talk about you know white privilege anymore let's call it a white blessing, and you know a lot of us went in on lacrae like you know what the hell dude like you still deferring to whiteness, um and then my good friend uh, and colleague Dr Shanika Walker Barnes had an amazing thread, uh and ended with like hey you know if Lecrae wants to really learn more here's my book, and my tweet back to that tagging Lecrae was like, hey, tell that Negro. And I said, I said, Negro, I didn't say nigger or nigger, right? I said, tell that Negro uh, about my book too, or something along those lines. But I said, Negro, tell that Negro to read my book too. And I posted the link to my uh, hostile gospel book on, on hip hop. And that got flagged for hate speech. All right. Uh, come to find out uh, from friends of mine and just colleagues that, you know, it was a lot of his followers Right. That reported that tweet and others that were, you know, criticizing Lecrae and reported it as hate speech. So, of course, the bots and the algorithms that run these things, because this isn't a person, um, at least in these days, I, I would hope it's not a person. But you, then again, you never know. Right. I mean, you know, reading this because you think anybody with, a, you know, any half a sense of a mind would. um look at that and be like that's not hate speech and look at it in context but the algorithm anyways for whatever reason it caught it and um said it was hate speech and i appealed the first time then they responded and was like no we looked at it again and it is hate speech you violated our our terms and basically the only option i have is to delete it and admit my guilt um or to keep fighting and so i chose to keep fighting and so here i am i still don't have access to my at dan white hodge um twitter account so that's kind of in a nutshell with that. Um, so as a result of that, I've just really done a hard search of my own emotional, social engagement with social media, and I pretty much just said "fuck it all." Um, and and that's part of the reason why I just I was like, you know what? I I usually you know advertise for like three weeks and say, oh, you know, Profane Faith season five is coming, and here it comes, but. I'm just starting. I'm just starting. Fuck it. You know what I'm saying? I I don't know. This this season has been exhausting. And I know a lot of you who are listening and and you know hearing this um it it is in in similar fashion for you as well, right? You are exhausted. You're tired. There's a lot been going on. Now, I'm recording this after the November 3rd, 2020 election um and so yes, there's a new president declared. Um I'll get to that in a second because I'm not, yeah, I'll get to that in a second. But this whole season, right, the last four years, and now we add in COVID, it's just, it's, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, And I'm sure in each of your communities, as is in mine, uh, you know, there's a lot to contend with, right? And at least for my family and myself, you know, we're uh, all remote and, um, you know, here we are, we're, we're in... What seems to be just kind of an ongoing uh tirade of madness um so i don't know i mean my my thoughts on social media are this one i have yet to read a complete study um that says how good uh social media is um that's just you know in, in the research right uh, that it it produces and we know this right depression anxiety angst um uh, you know, a uh, fear, uh, it rises. You know, it, it it puts things, you know, in into. You know, when you have access to everything and anything, it becomes very difficult to figure out what is truth, what is actual, actual factual. Um, I think what gets me the most about all of this is that. For me it's about process right Enneagram for creative and you know being a realist it it's the process right it's like I I think for me part of it is still the reeling from I did all those things and didn't get the expected result that I was told to get right um and and in a way I mean this is a lot in a large part this is where societally we are having a Western society reckoning, um, as the way I see it, right? We're, we're, we're coming to a point, right? Where technology is evolving enough that we are asking what is reality, right? When you have, you know, AI and machine learning robots that have their own Instagram pages and have millions and thousands of followers, right? We begin then to ask what is reality? What is this thing, right? So this essence, I'll have to break that down in another talk uh, later. But and I know that you know that kind of gets into the, the, the whole side of philosophy and and just where we're at culturally as a as a people, as a human species, right? We're we're no longer sticks and stones, right? So we're to the point now where you know we're asking broader meta questions about our existence and and purpose. On a much smaller level, um, you know, I think that's part of the. My own religious, you know, deconstruction is to say I did these things, but I have not seen the results that I was told I was supposed to get. That's on a religious spiritual side. I've, I've talked a lot about that and, and, and definitely puts on some classes in regards to that. Um, it, it, The other side of it, though, I think is for me is is on the social media side is, you know, as I'm thinking about this, it's like I did all the things that people said to do. In fact, I hesitantly came to Twitter. I didn't come to Twitter because, oh, yeah. In fact, I it was it was a colleague of mine at the time. was like, in fact, this was right after the solo hip hop was published. And, you know, somebody was like, man, you need a Twitter, you know, account because that's where everybody's at. And I was like, I don't know no, no Twitter and everything. And I got on and I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, and I try to do all the things that people said to do, right? You follow this person. Oh, they'll follow back. Oh, you tweet this and tag into the hat, you know, the hashtag. And when you go speak, do some live tweeting and this and this and that. And I think, for me the frustration is is that I I built up, you know, a minimal following, right? I had like what is it? 43, 4400 followers. That's not a lot. Um, you know, and I mean, I know for some people we're just like, hey, it's just whatever. I you know, I felt like I was doing the process. And again, chasing that dream, chasing that like TLC said man, then waterfalls, right? Uh, you know, chasing that that dream of being this kind of celebrity status. Um, I I put in that work. Right. And, you know, so much so that, you know, it was easy for me to get lost in the weeds of Twitter and for it to be taken. Right. Like all my bookmarks, all my saved uh, tweets and all my saved, uh, you know, everything, the, the entire account, I can't access it. Even though I still get messages, right? My my Twitter, my the Twitters keep sending me, hey, you have notifications. You have over 400 notifications, you know? Are you ever going to look at those? I'm like, ah, bitch, like, yeah, I'm going to look at them. Let me in. <laughs> so all those things, right? And then I look up and like in an instant, it's gone. And I think that's just another pisser for me uh, that... You know, along along the lines, right Of all the other religious crap It's like, oh, well, you pray this and you'll get this Or, oh, you do this and you do that, right And I think that for me is the coming out of that deconstructive era And I feel like social media is just that And I'm really leaning into the space Of just doing things to do things Because I want to do them And just to lean into who I am And to be comfortable with that Um, And I know that sounds cliche, but there's something powerful about just living into what is at the present moment. Um, And that's part of what I'm learning. That's part of what I'm taking away from this banishment right, Uh, from Twitter, you know, because that was really what I held as my social media professional, you know, public facing page. My Facebook is like locked up. Instagram has continually been locked up. My LinkedIn is just it, you know, that's that's whatever. That's just nice for for people who want to feel, you know, connected that way, can connect with me. But you know, and 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 I think that's the, the rubber. That's the rubber for me. And not rubber like you know like, like rubber rubber, you know, the seal something, but the rub for me is it is is the the fact that I did all this in, in an instant, it's just it's taken away because the reality is we don't own what I mean. We we people of color, we don't own any of these outlets. We don't own any of these spaces. Those are they're still white controlled. And I think that was another stark reality. Right. It's like these rules which were designed right to to actually stop hate speech and to limit the amount of crap that's out there, you know, is attacking and holding back. Uh, other folks and stuff, you know, and then it's also a humbling thing. It's like, well, is your voice really all that? And I know I have a few fans, you know, so again, I'm not trying to bash myself. But again, I don't have millions of followers and I, you know, I don't have a national best selling book. So it just is what it is. And I think just settling with that has been more of a realization, especially during this COVID era, uh, than I had thought it was. And so yeah, that's kind of where that's at. The, the, you know, I'm not again, I don't want to sound like a, you know, a technological Luddite. I don't, I don't want to sound like somebody like just old or stuff. even though I am getting older. Um, I, you know, I think that social media, there is, you right, there is some decency to it in the fact that, you know, we can stay in contact and we can be connected. I can see certain family, although I don't necessarily always stay connected with family. Um you know but the reality of it is is that where we're at right now there is no monitoring there's no filter system with the amount of data that we have access to now i'm not arguing for a socialist where complete communist we have just blocks on everything i'm not saying that but it seems like we are just we are so attracted and i put myself in this we're attracted to drama and so these months being off, and I still have my Instagram account, but that was always for, like, you know, posting pictures of my cat, and I don't, I'll do not i be honest, I'm going to claim my age. I don't really understand Instagram, like, you know, how all the filters and crap work, and it it doesn't really make sense to me. It's not intuitive. Twitter made sense to me because he was like, you were able to post, tag, do some live videos or whatever, and that was that. Facebook, I'm kind of like, huh. It's like the old fogey place. Right. And everybody wants to write a book about arguments, you know, citing no facts. And I'm just like, I I don't I don't have time for that crap. Um, But I get it's here to stay. So, right. The horse is out the barn. And, um, you know, it's it's not coming back. I, for me, for one, have tried to pull back from that. And I don't have a large following. Right. I don't have 30, 40, 50,000 members. Right. I don't have. I don't have a significant platform that, you know, yes, I get it. I'm not trying to down myself and I'm not trying to like, you know, all poor me. I'm just, I'm a realist. Y'all know that I'm a realist. So I'm just calling it as it is. And I'm calling it as I see it. And as I see it is that, you know, I have some great content. I'm a scholar. I've got some books out there, but you know, I'm not no celebrity status. And I think for so long I was chasing that as an academic, as a, my own personal drive, right. Trying to prove myself to really when I was a kid growing up in racist ass Menard, Texas, um, you know, to prove myself that I would become more than what I was told I was to become. Right. Um, and you know, wanting to be included that own, that own personal desire. Right. So it's like, it's easy for me to look at, uh, you know, social media and, they didn't you just get jealous, right? To get jealous when people else somebody else gets a call to go do something, right? Cuz everybody wants to post. And the reality of it is that the temptation on the other side is to always post stuff that oh, I'm living good, I'm living life well and you know, life is is great and excellent in so many ways and oh, thank god and bless right all the crap that, you know, comes along with that. So I'm I I'm, I'm really, you know, struggling, you know, trying to figure out what is the proper place for social media um and i get that we've been looking at this type of you know transmediated uh, work and how that connects with our social lives the last 50 really 60 years right with the advent of television really with the advent of radio right because people had the same concerns that people were you know too too um Oh, what did they call it? Well, something with like ear. They were, you know, they were ear heavier Glued Their ears were glued to the, t- to the radio rather than being outside and enjoying one another. Right. So these critiques of media have been around for a long time. I think what's in, well, I think what's different and interesting is it's, it's not just the listening anymore. And granted, I get it like with world, the war, war of the worlds, right. The original HG Wells, you know, and the amount of people that went out and you know killed themselves and were like fearful right because it was like telling of this alien invasion right and like we are susceptible to being bamboozled (laughs) that's just who we are right um and you know evolution is yet to really uh push us past that and here we are trying to wrestle with what is real what is really out there what is the truth. And so, yes, we have information, but we also don't have the enough of us. And I will include myself in this the enough critical lens to you know to explore everything. So we've gotten to a place where everything becomes equal, right? Even including a racist, right? Including a white supremacist, you're know, right. We can say, well, their point is valid. Why would you want to discourage them? That's not freedom of speech, right? Allow somebody to just, you know, express their thoughts. And so we've gotten to a place now where all these things are just equal and disagreeing with them means that you're trying to shut them down. Um, This is a form of rhetorical, um, you know, in debate, you know, you try to flip the the script around a little bit to to basically accuse your opponent of doing something that you're already doing, right? Like, oh, you're you're not allowing me to finish my statements. You're not allowing me, you know, you're 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 using you're creating a a, a lie by saying that. You're not giving all the truth to that, right? So, it's this it's it's we've gotten to a point now where right, everything is valid. Right? And, and this this sense of social and discursive relativity. Um that everything is uh, you know, is open to debate, and I, for me, I'm just like, no, there are some absolutes in that. I'm not going to agree with a white supremacist. I'm not going to agree with somebody who thinks that putting people in cages at the border is okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to agree with that. Um, yes, Biden won, right? And I know social media played a part in that and all these things, but I'm just like, I, I get that people are ex- excited, and and I don't want to take away from that. I'm, I'm. Psh- I'm not that excited. Like I, I, you know, you think, oh man, a sense of relief, but what are we going to? So that's the first question, right? And so, for me, I'm asking that of, of social media as well. What, what am I doing? Because our media cycle is anywhere between five and eleven days, depending on the on the issue. Granted, there have been things like overwhelming that have dominated the media cycle. And this is one of the things that I think the Trump administration does well. The Trump era. Is able to manipulate the narrative and the transmediated connections all over the place, right? To dominate, dominate what is being said online um, and anywhere. Remember, you gotta remember in advertising, in, in in particularly places, you know where you know celebrityism is is big. There is no such thing as bad publicity, okay? people are talking about it it was like back in the day when people try to run over snoopin' them cds and two live crew right i don't know if you're old enough to remember you know back in the 90s when you know you you had these like big uh uh uh, ceremonies where people were getting this steamroller and running over cds because they were disgusting it was like and people was like well somebody had to buy those cds so you put money in my pocket i don't care what you do with them after you buy them right um so no no uh, advertising is bad advertising. So I think we have to start with that. And so that's one of the things, right, that this era has proved is that they are dominated in this. So these news cycles, right, continue to pump out anything about Trump. The second is, is that I ask myself, because, right, we always tell people, oh, go follow this person, go follow this person. And and I hear you. I do follow him. But I'm still trying to process shit from Mike Brown. Right. I'm still trying to figure out, like, how the hell, right, Zimmerman is able to walk free. Right. I'm still thinking through that. (laughs) Right. Uh, But we've moved on. We've moved on. We've moved on. Um, And the collective narrative of who we are continues to change. And so these are all things that I'm thinking about. And I want to I really haven't landed on a theme for season five. Um, uh, And and that's that's kind of where I find myself. It's this big question mark. What does religion mean? What does it where are we at societally? And I think that's part of what I'm trying to process, right? Pun intended, because my guest today, Dr. Monica Coleman, talking about process theology. Um that's what I want to kind of process out loud here. Um, in you know, in the season, like what what does it what does it all mean? You know, I started this podcast as a result of the 2016 election back in 2017. Um, and I get podcasts are blowing up right now, but there's a whole bunch of them out there right now. Right. And I'm great, grateful for a lot of them. My, my good friend, uh, Brandy Miller has, has one that I was just on and that's an amazing podcast. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to see what the significance is and maybe it's just my anti four talking and, 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 and right. And all those other, you know, astronomical elements that go into that being Capricorn, all that crap. <laughs> um, But I'm just I'm trying to say what is the significance of this and not just of the podcast or just but what is the significance of the what does it mean are we being led was Loki right in the Avengers in that we as humans just want to be ruled right we want to have some kind of leader we want to have some kind of person telling us this is what we should believe this is how we should be led this is how we should be run um you know, and does it make sense that religion fits that? Because it 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 grounds us in some sense of extra, you know, paranormal reality. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. And I think that's the itch that drives me to continue to learn and to educate myself. Because the reality is, is we don't really know what happened two thousand years ago. We think we do, you know. But if you've been on listening to this podcast, you know that <laughs> There's a lot of jank and crap around, right? You know, even the the, the structure of what we call, you know, the sacred and holy Bible. Um, And that's something that I question. And people say, well, you know, are you still a Christian? I say, for the most part, yes. Um, But I'm also a thinking Christian in which, for me, the Abrahamic faith, I'm cool with. Eastern faith, I can pull a lot from. Um, and the reality of it is, is that God is an ongoing pursuit. Um, and so I'm not so concerned and wrapped up with this issue, right? Of salvation. I used to be absolutely right. I was gun toting Well, not gun to, we'll get to that later. I was a Bible toting, um, you know, uh, person that's like, you know, we got to get these people saved. Right. And as a black former black Adventist, it was like get people saved and also get them indoctrinated to the Sabbath. So I don't know. I that's that's where I'm at right now. You know, maybe by the end of this season, I'll be in a different place. I don't know. I hope because I hope to grow. As I've always said, it's like I hope I'm out in the same spot educationally, knowledge wise, wisdom wise that I was a year ago. I hope to be growing. This is a difficult season. and And, you know, what I'm doing to keep myself sane. Two things. Music. And uh, I'm doing a hell of a lot of projects around the house, physical work, right? Remodeling the bathroom, resurfacing the stairs, right? Getting up on the ladder, fixing elements of the roof and parts like that. All that shit helps me. I guess my question to you is, what are you doing, um, you know, to stay safe? I'm also opening up the doors too, to those who are listening. Um, what should Profane Faith podcast include as we enter season five? And I know we're well over 100 episodes. What should be the next element? What should we include? Should we include different segments? Uh, should I get a guest host? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. And I want to develop that a little bit more. I haven't put stuff together. I might put a Google uh, survey together on Google Sheets, you know, because Google's taking all our information anyway. So what the hell? <laughs> right. Um, I'll put that out there. And I'd be curious to hear from y'all, the fan base. Um, and people who listen, what y'all think, you know, where we should go next. Um, I am a you know, a one-person operation over here. Um, and so I just, yeah, you know, see what see what's happening. So we got a new president. Let me get on to that. Um, I'm not that excited. Yes, great, Kamala Harris makes uh um, you know, history. But, you know, have all of a sudden we got police reform and all of a sudden, you know, racism is ended and yeah, it, it gets me that... And this is where I feel like, again, media has, has got... Us, we, Trump was so bad that really a potted plant would have looked better than this motherfucker, right? <laughs> I would have voted for a potted plant just to get this motherfucker out. Biden is not a strong candidate, right? There's a lot of stuff that I'm just like, dude, really? Right? And... I mean, I eventually settled on, on Elizabeth Warren because I feel like she had probably, out of all of them, out of the candidates, was probably had the best agenda, um, and I just like her outlook in general. Um, but even so, I'm just like, I, I think it's time for a third party. I think Tupac was right back in the 90s when he was like, you know, I don't, I don't really get with Dems or the Republicans. Um, we need a candidate that speaks for us, and when I mean us, Black folk, people of color, that are that's actually going to take our issues seriously. And I don't necessarily think that that's in Biden. I'm not sure about Harris. I mean, I question, you know, her connection with the, with the, you know, as being the top cop. So I, I, I celebrate. And at the same time, you know, by, by uh Harris. And I'm glad that, you know, Trump is out. Although, you know, he's going to wreak havoc until now, until January 20th. So expect that <laughs> COVID is still going strong. COVID ain't slowed down a none. So I don't. I'm just not that excited, y'all. I'm just going to keep it real. Um, and I'm not ready to ha- hop over. I know, you know, I have some friends of mine who are hopping over to, like, the black libertarian side. And I'm not ready to do all that. Um, no, I don't think the election was rot with, you know, was um, uh, fraud and all that stuff like that. No, I don't, you know. And at the end of the day... I can't be everywhere. No, none of us can be everywhere. I do think we've been hoodwinked as black folk in this country. We've been told, right, we got to vote for Democrats because they are somehow, you know, the better of them. But it's like I've been voting right blue for damn near all the time that I've been able to vote. And I still don't see much change. And I guess I'm asking to the point now, and I know there's a lot of people who are asking it. What is the change? Right? Are we really going to really do police reform? Are we really going to look at a place like Minneapolis and say we're going to undo the you know because people get cold feet right? It's like you got somebody you know who's a player, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, you know. But then it gets to the day of the uh, of the wedding, and they're like, uh, uh, oh, oh, that means I can't go with these other people. It means I can't go. Oh hell nah, no. <laughs> you know, and that's the way I feel like. And and like for me, like Minneapolis. Is like the case study They start out with like Oh we're gonna do police reform We're cutting them out of schools Blah 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 and now it's like Well I don't know I mean, You know We need the police And Right And we also know that You know White folks is, is Who are in the police department Have been involved With white supremacist groups For years Right and The New York Times Is reporting this Right and I'm like This is shit We've been knowing For a long time We've been saying People were saying this shit In fucking rap music Back in the 80s, but nobody wanted to pay attention. And now all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, my God, there are white supremacists in the police. Department. I have a neighbor, a black neighbor who's a cop, former cop, OK, here in Chicago. And was just like, I, I had to get out. I had to get out. I had to get out because at the end of the day, I was seeing white officers who would enter. You know, the police force because they wanted to get back at black people. He said, I felt like I could deal with them and and try to, you know, change their minds and blah, blah, blah. He said, but I was overwhelmed by the amount of folks who are coming in, white folks coming in, um, wanting to do ill harm to the black community. And the reason that and they're able to join the police force. Right. Because it's legal. No different than Vietnam veterans who came back right from the war. Didn't really people didn't really know what post-traumatic stress disorder was. They had given their, their their them a taste to kill, right? And several of them that I interviewed, you know, who said, "Look, I, I, I knew I had to go back to the war because I knew I, 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 When people pissed me off, I wanted to kill them, and I knew if I stayed here, I would go to jail. So I reenlisted because the army was paying me to kill people, right? I and, and this is where we're at, right? This is this kind of embedment of white." whiteness white true white supremacist groups and organizations right with law enforcement i haven't seen any change in that so it's difficult for me to celebrate it's difficult for me to get out in the streets and just be like yay all right i'm glad trump is out but we're by no means done with that shit okay (laughs) no means done with white, white white evangelicalism no means So I have to keep that intention with that celebration. So first guest of the season. Oh, y'all gonna love her. Y'all know her well. Dr. Monica Coleman. um, I've been trying to get her on the show for a long time. Uh, Her book is amazing. Bipolar Faith Uh, was on a series that I used to be a part of. Theology for the People. I don't think the series exists anymore. Um, But uh, Dr. Coleman is a Harvard graduate, ordained minister, and the first African-American woman. To be appointed full professor of theology at Claremont School of Theology, the first. Remember, any time we're at the first, <laughs> it don't mean we've done anything uh, other than we've appointed the first, right? We've kind of made that step. So that's still amazing to me, right? This was out at, at Claremont, California. She's uh, she's not there anymore, um, but uh, she was the first. Her faith has repeatedly been uh, undermined by the desperate lows of depression In a new memoir, uh, This Bipolar Faith, uh, Dr. Coleman reflects on the legacies of slavery, poverty, war, and alcoholism and how these conditions uh, can mask a history of mental illness. Illness, excuse me. Uh, She currently teaches theology and African-American religions at Claremont. No, 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 she's not at Claremont. Well, this is an old bio. Sorry, uh, she's uh, she's on the the, the the east coast. She's gonna she's gonna say uh, where she's at here because I'm I'm gonna screw up the uh, um uh, where she's at now. But she's no longer at Claremont, and because I think Claremont ended up going to someplace. Anyways, um, sorry, my cat's acting a fool right now, right in front of me. Hey, it wouldn't be profane face right if there weren't animals in the studio with me right now. But Dr. Coleman's a friend. Uh, more importantly, she's a friend and uh, colleague. I've admired her work. I admired who she is as a person, uh, as someone who is engaged with serious work. And I was so honored to finally get her on the show and to talk a little bit about just kind of where we're at as a society. Hope you enjoyed this interview and let's continue this dialogue, folks. All right. Enjoy it. Season five. Dr. Monica Coleman kicking us off. Check it out. So, uh, welcome back, folks, to another episode of Profane Faith. Here we are, season five, and I finally get to sit down with friend and colleague, Dr. Monica Coleman. Doc. It's good
1: to be here.
0: Thank you for coming on. I appreciate we finally got a chance to sit down. I know you were in Chicago, I think, last year, was it? Was you in Chicago last or two years ago? <laughs>
1: I don't even remember. Uh, we, yeah. We were so elastic with COVID. We don't know when we were anywhere.
0: Yeah, you ain't lying about that. <laughs> You ain't lying about it that. Last, it
1: was last school year. I remember now. We couldn't make it work. You're right. I remember.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I'm thankful that you're here now. Um, for a lot of folks who don't know you and just your work, I mean, the same question I have been asking for five seasons, it's like, what has been happening from birth to now? How have you come to be Dr. Monica Coleman? <laughs> well,
1: I'm not Dr. Monica Coleman to myself.
0: <laughs> I hear that. Yes.
1: You know, I think I've moved around a lot, mainly with my education, like many of us who are in higher ed. And I think that kind of geographical moving has given me a better sense of who I am in a way. So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan and I am a GM baby. My dad worked for GM. Okay. And I am a product of what people study in terms of African-American migration, right? My families are from the Carolinas and half stayed and half went north. And of that half that went north, those were my grandparents and my parents who went north to DC from the Carolinas. And so we ended up in Michigan because those were good factory jobs, you may recall, in yeah. the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, I've lived in New England. I've lived in the Mid South. I've lived further southeast in the Carolinas and Georgia. I've lived in California. I now live in the Mid Atlantic. Um, which feels a little bit like home, since my parents are from DC. Okay. And I have come to probably realize how much I have Southern roots in terms of what I eat, the expressions I use, the ways I raise my child. Um, but I do love the weather of Southern California.
0: Yes, definitely, definitely. And how did you? I mean, I'm be curious. I mean, how did you end up? Because that was that was actually how I first heard of you. Is you you were at Claremont. Uh, was it School of Theology? Because I know they have different schools over there. Is The School of Theology or a School of Religion? I was a
1: professor at Claremont School of Theology. And many years prior, I had been a graduate student at Claremont Graduate University's then ah, School of Religion. Okay. And I ended up there because I'm a process theologian. And that is where process theologians go.
0: <laughs> hmm. So, okay, I'm going to ask you something about that here in a second, just for some listeners who, who haven't heard about Whitehead and, and all process theology. But... What um and so okay, so you were a graduate student there and why a PhD? What what uh why or, or why the doctorate? Why the, the academic, right? I'm I'm always curious to hear these two stories, like what led you.
1: Um it was not my original plan. Now, no. I will say my mother has a PhD and okay. she got it while I was young. So I went to classes with her. I remember when she graduated. Um I remember the sacrifices it took seeing that as a six-year-old, seven year old, eight-year-old. Um, But she has a Ph.D. in education and her career stayed in K-12 education for most of my life. And so it wasn't something I thought about as a natural thing to do, even though I knew it could be done. I was very much interested in economics and business when I went to college, but I loved reading African-American literature. Mm. And that was my hobby, (laughs) I guess you would say. I loved even reading African-American literary criticism as a high school student. So when I went to college and took a course in black studies in the Harlem Renaissance, I was like, I can major in this? Like no one told me that I could study what I loved. And it wasn't that I didn't like economics, I just didn't love economics. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, I changed my major. My parents were like, what are you going to do with that? Now, right. The irony though, my parents were in college in the late 60s. They fought for Black studies mm. in their colleges. They were part of those Black students who were, you know, rioting and revolting and petitioning and asking for Black studies courses. I didn't know that then, but had I known that, I would have been like, hey, I am benefiting from what you fought for. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, then they kept saying, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? I was like, teach sounds good. And the more I said it, the more I believed it. And I just got really great opportunities to learn about higher ed and the life of research and writing. And then I had a call to ministry. Wow. And I was Like, wow, what do I do now? I, yeah. I get an MDiv. So I okay. applied to MDiv programs so I could learn more about what it would mean to be a minister, which is funny, right? Because MDiv programs don't actually teach you how to be a minister. Um, but I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So I did get a lot of my questions about religion answered. And while I was there, I learned about process theology. And I did not like it. And so I was like, oh. what is this? This is different. This is not like what I'm used to. It has very new ideas. But at the same time, I was active in ministry. As a minister, I was working with populations of people who experience intense suffering. I work with survivors of sexual violence, survivors of domestic violence. I am a survivor, and I knew what it was like to have questions of God and questions of religion when you live with intense suffering. And I felt like the theology and the church lessons I inherited didn't have good answers for that, but process theology did. And that is how I ended up getting a PhD.
0: Ah, okay. And, and now I forget, what did you go for your, for your doctorate?
1: I went
0: to Claremont Graduate University. Okay, all right, all right. So with that, with process, I mean, and can you break that down a little bit? Cause I know my man, and you know, I mean, John Gill, cause he was one of your doctoral students too, right?
1: Yeah, John Gill, one
0: of my doctoral students, he's great. He is, he is, I love that dude. We we talk all the time and I love just the way he thinks and processes things, but I'd be curious, just like your definition of process theology and how how that breaks down.
1: Ah, thanks for asking. Um, the short version I say is this, in process thought, we believe that everything that happens is a result of three factors. What you have to work with, or your past, the op- possibilities of, that exist in your given context and what you do with it. And that what you do with it part, we often call creativity. And those possibilities, we often think that God is the one who offers us possibilities in our context. And our past is our past but because everything that happens is part of this process it's always changing it's always in process which is why we call it process theology and not only is this a process that everything in the world undergoes whether you're an atom or a tree or a dog or a person it's also a process that god undergoes
0: wow okay i like that that is that is very understandable, right? It's like it's kind of like when my colleagues try to explain uh, um, calculus to me and like put it in layman's terms. I was like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." Um, so how? Okay, so this is so I got a, a, a dozen questions in, or, or, in around that. How then does process theology fit into the current era that we find ourselves in? Right? It's like I, I'm just literally coming from a, a division meeting in our in our school and. You know, people are talking about QAnon, not that they agree with it, but that, you know, it's it's been coming up more and more in classes. And, you know, people believe that, you know, Trump is our savior, that somehow we're going to be saved from, you know, from these pedophiles that are in the upper elite echelons. How does I mean? And that's just one end of it. I mean, how, how have you worked through some of those things? And, you know. You, especially with your church background, because weren't you part of? I think Ralph Watkins told me that you were a part of the church, was the AME church out in LA?
1: Yes, uh, I am ordained AME like Ralph Watkins.
0: Okay, all right, good old. Yes, yes, yes. So how does that, how does, how does some of this fit into where we find ourselves today?
1: <laughs> where we're at um, I now? i to answer the question for you. Um, well, one thing that process does really well was change. And I think everyone can agree that we can really feel change. Mm -hmm. In fact, process is very much rooted in that old idea that change is the only constant, right? That things are always changing. And so we very much affirm that. We're not pretending things aren't changing. (laughs) We don't try and say it's going to be okay. It's just, it is what it is. Change is the core of life. Um, Some would even say God is change. And it's not so much that one worships change, that we understand that this may be one of the highest and most fundamental elements that we experience in the world. And so I think as we're in this season of great political protest, you might say, globally even, as we are in a season where we can feel some of the big and abrupt changes that a global pandemic has brought to our lives, people feel like, wow, I don't know how good I am at navigating change. And I would love to have a faith that responds to the fact that we're all trying to figure out how to adapt and how to change and how to be creative in the midst of that. And so process theology really speaks directly to that.
0: Wow, that's good. I like that. That is you know that that puts it on point. I like that. and and, and in what are some of the ways that process I'd be curious just what that some of the you know a couple ways that the process theology speaks to that, especially with kind of the societal, cultural, religious, Right. People feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, um, I'm voting, you know, Republican. I mean, this and these I'm talking about like black folks. I'm not even talking about white folks. I'm talking about like black folks who say I'm voting for Trump because he's done a lot for the church, uh, you know, because we're in a war against Christianity and, you know, Fuller Theological Seminary. Right. Uh, they you know, they just had that. I'm sure you heard about that. Right. The the the, the lawsuit that they it you know landed in their favor because you know student was they expelled a student for having a same sex uh, marriage and uh, that's those students sued them and lost uh, and you know in, the, in some of the communiques I get some of those communiques and they're like pretty happy about that because they're like hey this is a win for religious freedom and you know the state can't take away our rights to practice what we truly believe theologically how does how does yeah how does process theology engage with with some of these areas i'm i'd be very curious
1: <laughs> well that's a big question yes um, so let me give one example because process theology believes our agency is real right remember i mentioned that we have we're working with what the past gives us yeah what's possible and what we do with it that what we do with that part is our agency and it also reminds us that there's also the past we have to work with, which can sometimes be very powerful, but is not determined. And so I think one of the great things it tells us is that we have agency, is <laughs> that we can vote things up, we can vote things down if we're looking at politics, we can choose to move in a different direction than the past has given us, or we can choose to perpetuate and lift up the best of what the past has offered to us. Um, But these are decisions, but they're not made in a bubble because this happens with everyone. And process is also known as what we call a relational theology. It's a deeply relational theology. So we are always reminded that what happens in other parts of the world with other people, with other families affect us, that we're not just these kind of radical individuals making decisions for ourselves, but that we're affected by what other people do and what we do also has an impact in the world. And that God is the one who offers us possibilities. And so this is where we can see, imagine new things happening. Wow, I can't imagine how it could be any different from the past. And sometimes there are possibilities we can see. And sometimes God offers us possibilities of things we didn't even know were possible. Um, But because this is kind of the core of what process is interested in, there are things that process doesn't do it's not as interested in drawing lines about who is in and who is out or who is in God's favor, who's not in God's favor, because we believe that God is within everyone and within every process. Again, whether you're a tree or a quark or a person or a dog. Now, with people, we find people more interesting, but God really is in everything on a very, very deep, almost molecular level.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's I, I like that. You said quarks. I'm assuming you're referring to quarks, atoms, and all that good stuff. Yeah, like
1: those little bits of energy that are even smaller than electrons.
0: Right? Yes. All right. See, this is this, this is what I'm talking about. This, I love this. Um, yeah, it really
1: enforces that God is a spirit, right? So God really is in all of us, which is a pretty core tenant for a lot of Christians and those coming from Jewish traditions as well, right? That God... Breathe God's breath into us. That God is in us. That God is with us. So we affirm some of these things that are pretty fundamental to many religious people. But we believe is not just special for people. <laughs> we think that this is true for all of creation because all of it is God is a part of all of us.
0: This is good. Um, so let me ask this: As a black woman um, in in higher ed, how how have you survived? How have you navigated classrooms? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be, yeah, be curious to hear about that.
1: My first name is Monica, Dr. Coleman, if you're nasty,
0: right? Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to use that one. Okay, all right.
1: I mean, I say that jokingly, but really, yeah. I mean, that's way I've navigated classrooms is I do have a level of formality when I teach. I tell students, they may call me Dr. Coleman or Professor Coleman, and I will call them by some preferred uh, title. Sometimes it's Mr., Ms., J or reverend, right, <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on who I'm teaching, um, and then by their last name, so that we are offering each other the same level of respect, but there's no illusion that we're friends. Right? I have been younger than many of my students for parts of my career, Okay, and um, I look a little younger than I am. I might not anymore, but I definitely did for a little while, <laughs> and um, it was one way to establish respect and authority. And I think as many of my doctoral and formal doctoral students can tell you it didn't take away any sense of affection or intimacy or a sense that I was a mentor when those were what the roles were but ultimately we weren't friends or peers until they had PhDs as well ultimately I was still grading and evaluating and so that would probably be one of the major ways in the classroom that I have maintained that level of respect and I think a good sense of humor I caught students one day, they were mocking me, not just me, all faculty. (laughs) It was a student (laughs) event, and they were kind of doing these imitations of faculty, and they did one of me, and it was so funny because it was so true, and the person kind of came up to the front of the stage and said, so I want you to read this 300-page book this week and another one next week, the other one next week, but no problem, you can do it. Then they smiled, and they all went, Dr. Coleman, Dr. Coleman. Um, (laughs) So I've been known for being um, a, a, a professor who, uh, Philip Butler, you may have interviewed him at one point. He yeah. says, I bring the hammer and the grace. So I guess I've been known for bringing the hammer. But I also really do try to walk students through what I want them to do and teach them what I'm expecting them to do and make sure that they all walk out with the skill and the content that they want to.
0: I love that. I love that. And, I, you know, I'm sure knowing who you are, you wouldn't admit it, but I, I have just the the whispers and the rumors around as I we've attended AAR, uh, which I've talked about extensively on my show here about just my connections with that. I, you know, I, I mean, AAR is not perfect, but it's for me, it's been a, a networking savior for myself and career and everything. But, you know, you are going down as one of the greats, as one of the great you know, theologians and, and how does this, or does it not, how does it connect with womanism and uh, feminism, uh, black feminism? I mean, how does some of these things with particularly race overlap for you?
1: Um, Yes, yes. And yes. I mean, I teach in (laughs) an Africana studies department now, right? My first degree was in African-American studies. So for me, in many ways, black studies is my home in terms of um, my first higher ed pedagogical experience and in terms of what I would learn even when I was in junior high and high school and the things that my parents exposed me to. So much of my work, not all of my work of course, but much of my work comes from that place, comes from the same commitments as womanist religious scholarship, as black feminist scholarship, as feminist scholarship, as liberation theologies have. Meaning that I'm very interested in literature, I'm interested in starting with experience, I am always interested in a telos or an end goal of justice, of quality of life, of well-being for the common good, and I do that with a process philosophical approach in terms of my concepts of God and my concept of the world, but my commitments are very much in line with what I would say are protest traditions, liberative traditions, and traditions that center women's experiences.
0: That's what's up. No, that's what's up. Um, I mean, in some of the areas you've been at, it it you know you've you've you know you've had a a, a large impact. Um, and you know now you're back on the East Coast. Um, how have the different approaches from you know either just either in the class and pedagogical practices? You know, is there any difference that you found from West Coast to East Coast? Um, you know, student engagement, all that stuff. Because I'm assuming, well, my primary audience is undergrad, so I got eighteen to. 21-year-olds primarily in my classes. So uh, I'm not sure what age group primarily you are engaging with. You know, yeah. Are you mainly adults, mainly folks who've already got at least one degree, correct?
1: No, not anymore. Oh, okay. 12 to 15 years, I was teaching graduate students who were um, at the youngest, 22, and usually well up to 50s and 60s. So adult learners, and most of whom had a good amount of life experience under their belt, right? I was yes. teaching, preparing for ministry or for graduate careers in the academy or for, comu- or for careers of community justice. Um, again, many were second career, many um, were parents, right? And they already had full, full lives of their own. Um, and so I was teaching quite adult learners. Now I teach and mentor graduate students as well, but primarily undergrads. And so the last time I taught undergrads before my current position, undergrads are millennials. Now undergrads are Gen Z.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so it's quite an adjustment. Um, yeah, I could say that quite an adjustment. I was also teaching people who knew they wanted to study religion. Yes. Now I am teaching people who are learning about black culture for the first time in my class. And sometimes they're, all, they're black, but they have not learned about African-American culture, African-American religion. And so I'm starting from ground zero. Um, pedagogically, it's different in the sense that I can't assume they know anything. Yeah. On the other hand, it's really fun because I can see the lights turn on in their eyes or <laughs> across the screen nowadays yeah. when they're presented with ideas that feel old to me, but are new to them. They're like, wow, I never thought about the intersection of capitalism and patriarchy and racism. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it, right? <laughs> so, um, Wow, that's a new way of thinking of it. It's just like that article I heard about on the news. I'm like, yes, it's just like that. So it's really fun helping people draw connections between historical theories and current events.
0: And I love that. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that's undergrad has shaped most of my teaching career. I mean, I still have connections with doctoral students and that I'm teaching or, you know, master students as a, you know, as a part timer for different universities. But primarily, like I said, 95 percent of my student body is is undergrad. And I've had to really reshape the way I was taught. And particularly when I was getting my Ph.D., the way I was taught how to teach. Right. It's like. I can't just get up and lecture and expect students to pick things up. Like you said, this Gen Z, I mean, I was commenting to somebody, I think uh, two years ago in 2018, I was just like, man, you know, the freshmen were born in the year 2000 and now we're in 2020. And obviously now, you know, it just keeps moving up. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, given, I feel, I feel
1: my age more for sure.
0: <laughs> definitely. Yes, 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 yes. Um, okay. So you, and you've written you're like a prolific writer cause you've got a lot of books and I love that. You have five, no six altogether. That's what's yeah. up. Um, bipolar faith, I think is, and I've quoted you, I actually cite you in a couple of my own, uh, uh a couple of my own works as well, uh, particularly as your, know, your, your take on postmodernism, but I definitely want to talk about bipolar faith. Like what, what was the Genesis behind that? Um, how was that? Because that was a powerful book. It came out on a publisher that uh I had the fortune of sitting uh, on as an editorial board member. I don't even think that line even exists anymore, but <laughs> right. you're you're there, you've broken it down, and yeah what was what was that for for you to to write a book like this?
1: Um Well, thank you for asking. I, I would say in some ways, it was both a lifeline and trying to fill a gap. You know, you go to these workshops on personal and professional development, and they ask you, if you were to die tomorrow, what would be the one thing you haven't done or wish you had done more of? And most people are in there saying, oh, I wish I would worked less and spent more time with my family or different things. And I'm like, no, my family gets plenty of time, you know. Yeah. But for me, it was, wow, I haven't written this book. Like, I knew there was a particular story that I felt called to tell, and I hadn't told it. Um, I did not know it would come out like Bipolar Faith, though, <laughs> so okay. I that Bipolar Faith was my attempt of telling three different stories. I wanted to always tell a story that felt like a black girl story, um, so that was still important to me, that it read like a Gen X black girl story, um, and by, in, in my particular case, black meaning a descendant of the US slavery system, and then it kind of had those cultural markers that shaped me and shaped my people. Right. Um, But I also wanted to do a kind of spiritual autobiography that told the story of how I became a minister and how I wrestled with faith and how I lost faith and how I found it again. And I wanted to do what used to be called, and we still sometimes call a memoir of madness or tell Mm. a story about mental health that hadn't been told because almost all the memoirs were written by white people. Right. And people who didn't, have any faith connection. And I would read them and be perplexed or feel really outside of that experience. And so I wanted to write about what it's like to live with depressive conditions. And in my case, a bipolar depressive condition that felt black and that had faith in it.
0: Wow. I, and I think, I mean, it's a powerful story and particularly, you know, sharing aspects of mental health cuz i in, at least for me and in, in my experience in particularly within the black community you know we we don't talk about that a lot i mean um sure you may say oh i'm sad today or whatever or you know jokingly but oh that was so depressing um but i think this was a a, a way of really just engaging you know what this what what this looks like and how that connects i'd be interested you said Lost faith and reface. What was that process like for for you? What was that process of losing it, and then what you know what essentially brought you back? Because I feel and I asked that f- f- for several reasons. The, really, the primary one, selfishly, I'm, you know, trying to process a lot of this myself. I, in in retrospect, as like I, I should have just went to Claremont and worked with you when I was doing <laughs> my PhD. Um, but uh, I but I'm also you know some of the research that I do now, looking primarily at you know. Uh, black youth or young adults really 18 to 28 and one of the things that i get back a lot is you know i the church just doesn't fit me i don't i you know there's you know there's the you know it's kind of the old saying right it's like what what has god done for us lately and so i'd be curious like from your perspective what was that process like for you to lose faith what was were there any moments that you're like okay that's it and then and vice versa was there any moments that you're just like okay or was it a gradual i don't know what what say you
1: um, thanks for asking. Um, I grew up in black church experiences, uh yep. Baptist many churches. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ in college, so I have ah. that kind of evangelical background. Okay. And I would say I would want everybody to know, especially young people, but really everybody. Like there's this thing that people don't tell you. And that is that losing faith is part of the spiritual journey. Ooh. We tell this story Ooh. as if like we're supposed to keep the faith, and losing faith is this bad thing. And that's just not how it is. And everyone who's lived long enough knows that, right? Yeah. But instead of thinking like, oh, this bad thing happened to me and I had no resources for it, I wish we would say losing faith is part of the spiritual journey. Tillich talks about this wonderfully in his book, Dynamics of Faith, where he talks about doubt as being an indication that we take faith seriously. Um, And I wish I had been exposed to that as a young person because I did have doubts and I did have questions and I didn't really know what to do with them or where to take them because my religious communities weren't set up in a way that let me ask those questions. And so I lost faith like many people do during experiences of suffering. When my grandmother died, I was like, hey, I don't know about you, God. Um, When I became a survivor of sexual violence, I also had a major crisis of faith um, I've had more since then Yeah. and it was just like, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know if I wanna get down with this version of God. I'm not really happy with you. I feel like you've left me or betrayed me. And so I'm going to turn in another direction towards something else that might make sense or towards nothing. And I think when we turn towards nothing, we feel that emptiness Yeah. as compared to saying that this is part of what happens because we grow and we evolve and we change and we experience hard things because we're human. Not because anything's wrong with us, but because we're human. And so you're going to lose faith, but you'll find it again. And you're going to lose faith again and you'll find it again. And you won't find the faith you lost, you'll find another faith, a deeper, different, differently textured, faith, but it can still be found again. I don't know how to find it. I can't tell people, like, here's the roadmap for it. (laughs) But I can say that I think that if you believe you'll find it again, that helps. If you find a community of other people who are questioning, asking, raging, and looking, that helps. If you have sources of joy and you lean into them, that helps. And the faith will find you.
0: That's a good word. I like that. The faith will find you. I mean, because you're absolutely right. I mean, and I think I mean, I come out of the evangelical world dipped and died and, you know, losing faith, especially in the black context. I came out of the, you know, the black Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And so it was like losing faith. That was it. You have backslidden. You know, you ain't you, you you ain't gonna be in the you know, and what is it the 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 third angel's call? You know, you you ain't gonna be in that call, and you know, so there was always this fear that you know you had to, which I you know found just through either research or reading and what have you. That you know, it, it, there there are other people who are thinking that, but of course everybody's just kind of like, oh, I'm just gonna toe the line here. Um, in this day and age, where you know we're learning more and more about different aspects of you know you talk about quarks well i mean how has science particularly when you think about quantum you know quantum theory and uh aspects of interdimensional you know you think about dyson spheres and you know type one type two type three civilizations how has any of that fit into your own theological process now and uh if so what does that look like
1: Well, you are already out of my ballpark, you know. Um, Well, you know, this philosopher who I I studied, Alfred North Whitehead, was a mathematician turned physicist, turned philosopher. And so a lot of what um, process theology believes has a strong resonance with quantum physics. And that is probably all I can tell you. I am near religion and science conversations because I'm a process thinker, um, but I am not deeply in them. But I can say that because we think about our experiences as experiences and as energy events, because we believe that energy doesn't die, I think those things are consonant with quantum physics, because we don't think that our experiences are the totality of experience. So what happens on the earth or in the world or in the sphere in which I'm in, doesn't mean that's all that's happening, right? That God is well a part of other things besides my own experience that we have a lot of consonance and resonance with quantum theory. I can also say that I think for me, I really moved in the direction of looking at science fiction. Hmm. And a lot of it has to do with my interest in creativity and imagination and the ways in which black women who write science fiction, which we also call Afrofuturism, right. you know, often include religion in their imaginings of the world. And I think that's fun and cool. And so I've been studying and teaching Octavia Butler for years. Um, Right now, it's not a redo. And I have um, free webinars we've been doing about Octavia Butler giving us a parable (laughs) for today's pandemic. And that's been really fun. And I've got to interact with some great writers and thinkers and artists who I see tons of resonance between this vision of God as change that Octavia Butler writes about and what process theology teaches.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, I think, yeah, Octavia Butler, for sure. I mean, I think Afrofuturism, right. You know, paints some very interesting pictures, right. In regards to, you know, what the the future looks like. Um, This is good. I, I like that. And so nuancing even back to, um, I love the 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 press sheet that you have, you know, for bipolar faith. You know, on the five questions, right? Is how does bipolar faith fill the void? What do you think? You know, why, What do you think we have? What do you think we have overlooked about uh, how Black women in the United States live and manage with depression? Um, how, you know, how is how is this book? I mean, I love the reviews. How is this book written, received in the academy and some of the circles? I know you speak a lot. Um, how have folks, you know, resonated? with that uh, in, you know, in regards to faith and just depression and, you know, just, you know, you being open and sharing your own experience.
1: Well, you know, you write a book out there and it's like taking your life and throwing it against a wall and seeing what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you just never know. It's been received really well, actually. Um, I meant it as just a book for people to read. I really wanted to share that I believe that the major medical narrative about depression is incomplete and that the ways in which we live with mental health challenges are complicated the ways in which we get them are complicated and that was really a big message for me in saying that it's a combination of you know poverty and war and hmm. um addiction and history right that all the, and brain chemistry, right? All these things kind of come together and you can't just isolate them and say, oh, here's the issue, right? But no, we've long as a people (laughs) lived with and navigated difficulty and trauma. And I just kind of wanted to share that with whomever wanted to read it. And my main audience was, I think, people of faith. My um, book tour was largely in black churches around the country. So when people teach it in their class, I'm still blown away by that. <laughs> I, I didn't expect it, I didn't imagine it, but I'm really delighted. Yeah. I get really positive feedback. One of my friends said, have you ever read the Amazon reviews? I was like, no, who reads Amazon reviews? On your right, own book? Right. And she said, you could read them one day and I just wept. I mean, hmm. they, people had said just really beautiful things about how me sharing my story um, maybe gave them a language or let them feel like they were less alone. And that for me is the vocational aspect of writing, right? Like, oh, wow, okay, I've, I've done my job here. You know, this is what I feel called to do. And I'm glad that it's had a positive impact.
0: I love that. I I definitely love that. And I think it is encouraging. I mean, the book is amazing for those listening. You know, I'll put all these links in the show notes and com. But I, I'm also curious how you've been navigating some of the, you know, the time that we're in. I mean, for me, at least, you know, we went on lockdown here in Chicago, or at least Illinois, the state, um, in March. I think it was the, in fact, it was the first week, I believe, because that was when our spring break was. And I remember leaving the office and thinking, you know, I might not be coming back here because it was just all this talk about, you know, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, do remote online learning. I thought, ah, eh, we'll see what's up. And then sure enough, you know, it never came back. And so I, I heard from that, you know, just a lot of things. And I know I struggled from, you know, with my own just depression. I think we were three weeks in and I just felt this sense of, you know, having struggled with depression myself. Um, I was like, I need to, you know, reach back out to my therapist and, you know, we've been meeting every other week since and and whatnot. So have you navigated some of this, you know, this time of just kind of fluctuating? It's an election year, all the madness going on with that RBG (laughs) dies. And now, you know, we're looking at, you know, a third nomination. I mean, all these kind of, you know, societal things. And then just, not even to mention, you know, whatever is happening locally, right? And that George Floyd, you know, kind of just took, you know, there was a lot going on with that, you know, especially here in, you know, in Chicago. So, have you, you know, dealt with some of that and and dealt with just some of the own, you know, mental health concerns that have come up for that?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that on a mental health level, this year kind of sucks for everybody, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, yeah. Year that just bites. Um, that's the most non profane way I can think of saying it. Um, And I think a large part of it is even if you haven't experienced depression before, we are social people. Like that's what it means to be human. And so to have what is now a fairly prolonged season of social distance, of not being in community, of it not being legal or safe and or safe (laughs) to gather in ways that are meaningful for us. Those are things that sustain us. And so without them, I think we're all struggling. You know, some people more than others. Some people have a lot of isolation. Some people have too much togetherness <laughs> depending on who they're around. Yeah. Um, you're not permitted to do or it's not safe to do. Many of the things some of us have consciously or unconsciously set up as ways to stay healthy and sane. And so it's a challenge. And, and you know, I, so I think we're all kind of now patchworking in some ways within our own homes, what we can do. Um, I guess I'll say some of the things I've done that have been helpful is I zoom now with my friends around the world who are in a particular affinity group. And we were doing it once a week. Now we probably do it once every couple of weeks, but sometimes like, I just need to get on zoom and it's not work. And just to see your faces and see how you're doing and how your families are doing. And we might do that for two hours and we're all, we don't stop and Zoom. We're Zooming while making breakfast, while taking care of our kids, whatever. <laughs> and that's one way that we get community. Um, another small thing I've done is, um, you might find that you're around people all the time and you need solitude to be well. <laughs> and yeah. um, I'm a little bit of that kind. I'm, I'm an extrovert, but I also need my downtime. So one thing I've started doing is when my daughter is in her online karate class, I run upstairs and take a bath. I take a long bubble bath for the 45 minutes when I'm sure that she will survive without me. And it sounds small, but I was like, Oh my God, this is great. This is so wonderful. Yeah. A little bit of time or, you know, I'm not going to the gym. So I was like, well, the money I'm saving from gym membership, I'm going to buy a pretty nice stationary bike for the house. Right. So I think we have to kind of adapt to figure out ways that we can Be okay, even if it's minimally okay, Um, because I I felt the loss. I feel the grief of not being able to gather. Um, You know, we've lost important people in our culture and in our history, and personally, our personal lives. We've lost people, and grief is hard. But it's even harder when you can't gather and have funerals and rituals and the things that you know we all do as people and cultures and as space. To to honor these kind of losses. So I think it's a hard time for everyone.
0: Yeah. I like that. No, I like that. I like the Zoom that you said you just, you know, you're still living life. You're still cooking. You're still doing what you got to do. And that's real. That's real. I think I know I've been definitely been zoomed out and I see myself as an extrovert, but definitely been, you know, feeling the, they're like, oh man, I don't want to hop on just another screen. But that's good. I like that idea. And I just, again, just the, you know, the self care in general. Um, as we start to wind down here, I know I want to keep us to our time and everything, but, I, but I've appreciated just, you know, you sharing openly about, like, some of these areas, uh, you know, as in regards to, you know, where we find ourselves right now. I mean, what do you see? I mean, what do you see for the next 10 years? I'm just going to put it out there, right? I know no one's a futurologist, and we can't predict. At least I don't think you have a time machine or a DeLorean that, you know, can go 88 miles an hour. So, I, But what do you think? I mean, given the patterns, given the structure, given your knowledge and wisdom that you have— as a scholar, you know where do you what, what, what do you see for us?
1: I don't know that I can answer that. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a great prophet on that one. Um, I guess I could say what I hope.
0: Okay, exactly. great answer,
1: you know. Um, one thing I've noticed that gives me hope is that with being online and with the internet and our ability to know what's happening in other parts of the world so much faster, I am hopeful about global connections. I am more and more hopeful about the ways in which we see our own destinies tied to the destinies of people on the other side of the world, in which our freedom struggles are the freedom struggles of others, of how others have connected themselves to our freedom struggles, right? I am so much encouraged and hopeful that we are able to see the ways in which things that happen on one side of the globe really do impact people who are geographically far away but the kind of common humanity we share and the common thirst for freedom and for justice. So I have some hopes around that, that that will continue. Um, I have some, I have some really great hopes around young people, you know, even though I'm not sure I'm great at teaching Gen Z yet, I am (laughs) really excited about the ways in which um, young adults think about activism, how they think they're much better about balancing self-care and activism, than my generation or my grandparents or parents generation were. I think they've even thought about that. So I am encouraged by that. I am encouraged that there is so much more information out there about trauma. There's so much less stigma out there about intimate violence, so much less stigma about depressive conditions. I mean, these are changes I've seen in the last 10 and 20 years having been an activist in this area for that long. That I am encouraged that in another 10 years <laughs> that this that healthcare will be easier to access that stigma will be reduced that we will find ways to be community outside of the structures that don't work for us i really do see people building alternative communities and finding ways to come together in ways that feel authentic to them instead of feeling like they're constrained by particular institutions or structures so i have hope in those areas too
0: i like that I like that. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, people see you know, keep saying all, you know, when we get back to normal, I'm just like, well, I don't know. I know for me this, you know, the pandemic has definitely shown just, you know, the amount of speed that it, you know, we we all travel at, particularly me, you know, and and it's like, oh, man, to slow down to, you know, for me not having an, you know, an hour commute both ways, you know, in and out of the office and whatnot, it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, better use of that time. I mean, Uh, just being at home, right? You know, shooting. I'm in the middle of remodeling my bathroom. So it's like, all right, you know, we got the time to do this. Let's do it in the space to do it. Um, How do you see just in the academy? I mean, um, speaking of John, you know, and we've talked and so I can share this, but, you know, it's like he's, you know, he's been struggling to find, you know, work and and not just him, but I mean, the list goes on. All right, I have a host of adjuncts right now teaching in our department. Um, And I would say, you know, 98% of them are looking for full time work. How do you know, what advice do you have as somebody, you know, thinking about doctoral level work, graduate level work? How do you, how do you, how do you, what conversations are you having with folks who are, who are thinking about this path? So they just focus on STEM for the future.
1: Well, only if you're interested in it. Um, I mean, it's a hard academy. This is not the academy I went into Hmm. um, by any measure, The kind of job I have, people just don't have anymore, right? (laughs) In terms of you get a PhD, you're doing pretty good work. You'll get a tenure track job in X place. The since I began, the the corporatization of the academy is stronger and stronger. Um, But I think what is hopeful about COVID is that we're seeing the bubble burst, right? You know, with um, you're you're from Southern California, so you know what real estate is like in Southern
0: California, yeah,
1: and even Northern California. And you may recall how it, it's still high, but it used to be exorbitant, even higher than it was now. And in 2008, the whole bubble burst, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the crash of the academy, the crash of the economy, largely because of the way housing and mortgages were being done. And so there had to be a new model. And I think this is what's happening in the academy now. The bubble is bursting. They're seeing some of the financial challenges that COVID is bringing. You're seeing some of what happens, um, how you know, what happens with this model that's had a strong reliance on contingent faculty and a new model will emerge. I don't know what that new model is going to be, but I think some kind of new model will emerge. I mean, I think unfortunately some schools will close because they haven't had the economic base to survive um, COVID. But I also think that this gives us as scholars, right? Those who are knowledgeable and erudite in some subject matter An opportunity to think creatively about what we do and where we do it and how we do it right. We are challenged to think about How we're going to be public scholars (laughs) we are challenged to think about the various ways we can teach the knowledge that we have. Um, I hope we begin to challenge even more. So I mean, there are now at this point, at least blocks and for some institutions, even unions for contingent faculty to make sure that if you're going to go this model, everybody still has rights. and <laughs> still yeah. has yeah. some measure of protection. So um, I think that we're going to see a little bit more <laughs> of a unionization around contingent faculty um, And which, of course, then undercuts the whole reason why universities depend on contingent faculty. So hopefully that will lead to less dependence. On, on contingent faculty, um, but I, you know, I, gosh, I wish I had some, this is where I wish I had a crystal ball, right? <laughs> You're right. Think, um, hey, this is how it's going to go. And I don't think we know, but I do think there is a new model that's coming in terms of how universities are financed, in terms of how faculty are hired, in terms of what people with PhDs decide to do with their PhDs. So I think part of it's also Letting go of the idea that having a PhD necessarily means you're going to have a tenure track job at a small liberal arts college or at a research one or research two university. It could mean that, but what else do you do with your degree? What else do you do with your knowledge? What other kinds of ways can you live out your vocation? I think those are the really important questions that everyone should be asking.
0: That's a good. No, that's real good. I and in, in, I def wholeheartedly agree. I mean that uh, has been the the topic of conversation, at least a point of conversation. I know in our departmental meetings and and whatnot of of you know what what does the future look like uh, as this bubble is bursting? I think you know folks are reve- you know it's being revealed right. Just some of the the pitfalls and cracks, especially at small schools like you know the one I teach at is you know it's we're not we don't have big endowments and so we can't kind of hide under a name or, or uh, you know, some kind of quote-unquote legacy or what have you. Um, what uh, what are some things you are currently working on and towards? What what can we expect next from The Good Doctor?
1: Uh, thanks for asking. Um, academically, I am hopefully finishing, but <laughs> I'm working on a book about Black religious pluralism Ooh. and looking at the ways in which um, we merge and straddle religious difference. I've been working on that for, it feels like, forever, but I have modest aspirations of finishing it soon. And I have also been really passionate about taking Process Theology out of the very small academy that it's been in. So I am offering kind of courses for regular people online, which people can learn about at ProcessTheology101.com. And uh, which hopefully blends the best of teaching with the best of learning. No homework, no assignments. Just I want to learn something. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Right. And I would love to teach something without grading anyone's homework. Yes. And um, so I'm doing that. I put out some uh, new materials. So if you go to my website, you'll see a free five-day devotional there that you can pick up. And so I'm looking at doing some fun devotionals for Advent and for Lent and around some of the causes that I'm most excited about, like mental health and domestic violence. Wow.
0: That's, that's great. I love that. I love that. And just, and so folks know, cause I, you know, I follow you on Instagram. You you talk a lot about veganism too. You're like a hundred percent vegan.
1: I am. I've been vegan for a long time.
0: That's what's up. That is, man, that's beautiful.
1: I'm teaching you about it, but I do like to share my quirky pictures. And if you get, if you get on my uh, newsletter, I send out recipes once a month (laughs) if you're interested and just for fun things I've been cooking or maybe me and my kid cooking together.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. No, I'm absolutely on that list. I I appreciate those. Those, those are definitely some good, some good things, uh, good things to have. I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things we've been thinking a lot through, right? It's like, how do we consume? What do we consume? Um, and, you know, what do we, you know, how do we, how do we look at food? Um,
1: and for me, it's an expression of creativity, right? Like you got to eat. So this is a place where, you know, I get to be a little creative and be a little fun and de-stress too. So I don't think it's just like, oh, I'm super healthy. It's more like also, you know, how can I get this two-year-old or this four-year-old to get down with broccoli, right? <laughs>
0: right. Right. Oh my gosh, yes, 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 yes No, that's, that is uh, Yeah, that's always a big one um, Wow, well This, I mean, this has been great I appreciate you taking the time to chat a little bit We we, we covered some good uh, Some good ground here uh, With uh, your past and And present and hopefully future As, as we think about that um, Last question here And, uh, you know, and you can answer this However you want, but uh, When you think about Um you know pastime and sports and and whatnot how what is what are some of the creative things you know whether it be sports or whether it be art or what's some, some of the creative things that you do that kind of keep you going through the days you mentioned some but i just i wanted to ask specifically
1: well i think i would say right now cooking i've become an avid cyclist so i have cycled which was much easier in southern california with the weather <laughs> you know work with you so, yeah <laughs> Um, so I do like to cycle, which is why I now have a stationary bike inside. So I would still say cycling, although it's way more fun outside. Uh, and I am not by nature a sporty person and I didn't learn how to ride a bike till my late 20s. So the fact that I'm on the bike and don't fall off gives me great, great pride. Just so you know, the bar is not high. <laughs> um, but I think right now I would say cooking is one of the ways in which I express myself and have some creativity. And, you know, I'm a little nerdy, so I also kind of enjoy, you know, building out, like I built out the, the back end of my website. And so learning how to do that kind of also is really fun for me. And <laughs> kind of it. learning a new skill set um, to do those kinds of things is really fun. So that's definitely kind of a nerdy techie thing. I'm not a tech person, but I like to figure out how much I can do myself. <laughs> so yes. Teaching myself some of those skills over the break, too.
0: I love that. Yes. No, absolutely. I, yes, I like to fashion myself like that. I host everything. I have my own, you know, do, you know, work with PHP's and HTML and all that stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. And, and found, I found that the stuff that I can't figure out, the, you know, the, the help center has been, you know, relatively helpful when there's issues that come up. Well, thank you so much, Monica. Where can folks find you at? They want to, you know, bring you out and get you that nice uh, honorarium or, you know, virtually and whatnot. Where, where, where could they hook you up at?
1: You can always find me at MonicaAColeman.com and you can find me on all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Rev Dr. Monica and Pinterest at Rev Dr. Monica. If you want to get to the vegan recipes.
0: Oh, look at that Pinterest. I didn't know about Pinterest. Okay. I got to check that one out there. I just started on Pinterest. So. I didn't know what it oh, was.
1: we no. are not really the target audience for Pinterest. I don't feel bad. It's that's like- right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I certainly <laughs> am not. Definitely am not. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Um, when this next book comes out, we got to get you back on. Cause I definitely want to get into that. Cause that just sounds amazing. Uh,
1: I would love to come back. I can't wait to have it done. <laughs> I can say, Hey, let's come back and talk about it.
0: Yes. Yes. No, that's the truth. I've got an edited volume that I'm trying to get out right now. And, who? yes all right I
1: know. <laughs> edited volumes are god I, they're, they're a gift to the academy
0: yes yes it is it is it is a labor of love just trying to organize all that and keep it in line and oh yes oh yes
1: yeah but it feels, i mean i worked so hard on my anthologies i literally can't remember when they came out like <laughs> I, did, I have to like literally google myself to see what year they came out because it's you work hard on them. You send them to the publisher. You're like, Oh, thank God it's over. Right. And then you can't remember anything else. Like,
0: What? Okay. This is, I know, I know you got to go or whatever, but I, how did, how did Harvard help you? I mean, how have you networked? I guess that's another, I've always just, I just like people, particularly folks who've got a groove going, how have you networked to get, you know, some of these connections? I mean, like having Cornell West endorse bipolar faith. Well,
1: I mean, I went to Harvard undergrad, so that, that helps. Right. Okay. Um, And, you know, I didn't actually even know where Harvard was when I applied. I just was like, it's Harvard, let's apply, see if I get in. And I got in, I was like, wow, where's Harvard, right? (laughs) So I I really, and it turned out I I went and had a great time. And, you know, a lot of my classmates are now my friends. And um, so I guess there's a level of connection there. We're all just, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old college students. And then we grow up and we do stuff. So I guess there's always that level of networking, but you don't call it networking, you call it friendship, right? You call it people I know. Um, So I think if you network just trying to network, um, it doesn't go so well, but if you really care about relationships and maybe that's the minister side of me, right? The religious leader side of me, I actually like forming and developing relationships with different people. Um, then you know you're happy to do things for your friends, and your friends are happy to do things for you and be supported as much as you can.
0: I hear that. No, that's what's up. That's what's up. And I just asked. And, you know,
1: at some point you just throw it out. You know, you say, "How did I get an endorsement?" You know, I asked, and all that people can do is say no, but they might say yes. So I, I also I think have to have that kind of boldness or courage to you know ask for some things you want and see how it goes. And for what it's worth, people should know, I get lots of no's. <laughs> like I ask for plenty of things and don't you know, get the answer you want, but you can't get a yes unless you ask.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Totally totally. No, abs- absolutely. That's the that's the old that's the old adage, right? You have not cuz you ask not. So that's 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 true. Yeah.
1: And when you ask, you ask them this. That's right. <laughs> and a cool scripture.
0: <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, man. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, Blessings on what you're doing and and the work that you are putting out. This This is great.
1: Thank you. It's been a joy talking with you. I'm glad we were able to make this happen.